Uh, it's Revelation chapter 4 this morning that we'll be looking at. Um, basically, uh, in Revelation 4 begins a new vision that John's going to receive from God. And uh, so we're going to look today, just three things, three ways we're going to look at this. We're going to see the invitation that God gives to John. Uh, we'll, we'll look at the actual vision that he gives to him. And then we'll end the, the message this morning by saying, what's the point? Uh, we'll kind of give the so what question, which is a pretty good question to ask always in the Bible. It's not just an intellectual exercise, but to say, okay, now that we see what God has shown to John and he has written down for us, uh, what's the point? Uh, why is this so important? A couple things before I read this. Revelation is filled with symbols, and uh, I know Pastor Nick has unpacked kind of the nature of Revelation, but Revelation is filled with symbols, and symbols are powerful because they point to real things. Um, and so as we see symbols, you and I may read, as I'm reading this even this morning, you'll be thinking, what is this about? Like, what are these, these, these animals and these creatures with eyes and all these kinds of things? But these symbols are intended to point to realities, to real things, to important truths. We, we do this in our everyday life all the time, right? We talk about things and we say, as we're trying to explain something to someone, we say, well, have you ever understood, uh, for instance, a tree and how it grows? I should have Robert come up and do that and, 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 uh, and, and, and maybe have that help us understand some other reality in life, right? So we, we use symbolism in our everyday lives. And so John is going to use, the, the book of Revelation is going to use lots of symbolism in order to point us to very real things and very important things that we need to know. And so uh, with that in mind, in fact, uh, before I read it, I'll say one more thing about it, that the book of Revelation is a bit like uh, an instant replay in NFL. You're going to see this this afternoon as you're watching football, right? Um, in, 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 in NFL, when there's a, there's a, somebody catches a football, for instance, right next to the sideline, uh, and, and the, the referee comes over and says, no, no good, it, it's incomplete pass, right? The, the, the opposing coach pulls out his red flag and says, no, I, I think it was a good pass. I think he actually had possession... And so what do we do? We, 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 we look at that play, right, from about three different camera angles. So the first camera angle shines a light on it. We say, well, it looks like he caught the ball. He had possession of it, it looks like anyway. And, but we can't really tell if his feet were in bounds, right? So we see a different camera angle of the same play, and we go, yeah, his feet were actually in bounds, but did he keep possession of it all the way through? And so then we look at another camera angle, and it says, oh, nope, he did actually fumble the ball, and when he went out of bounds, therefore, it's an accurate call, incomplete pass, right? So the book of Revelation is looking at the story, the history of redemption from several different camera angles is one way to look at what we're seeing here in the book of Revelation. Does that make sense? All right, good. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Let's stand as we read God's word this morning in honor of God uh, and his authority in our lives. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door stood open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 
elder, or 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side, around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second creature like an ox, the third living creature like with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Let's pray. Father, we, we need, I need, and we need this vision that you give to John today. We need this today. And so help, help me as I describe this vision to at least give it just a fraction of the justice that it deserves. That we would today, as your church, who even as we've heard already, is experiencing suffering and difficulty and pain and sorrow, that we would see what John would have us see, what God had John see, and that we would see that today and be encouraged and comforted and strengthened. And so, God, we need this vision. So give me clarity as I speak and give us ears to hear as we listen. And may our hearts be filled full of your Holy Spirit, God, to understand that our lives would be changed, that we would be confident when we leave here today, that we would know you, our great God and King, and that that would make all the difference. And we pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. My buddy uh, in South Dakota and I, uh, we, we snowmobile together, and uh, one year, several, well, not, not too many years ago, actually, uh, it was April. We had one of those late four feet kind of snows in South Dakota that happens in April. And uh, some of you may not know anything about that, but some of you do. And uh, <laughs> I see some South Dakotans back there. And, uh, but we had, we had one of those four foot kind of snows in the Black Hills. So my buddy and I, we decided we can't waste a snow. So we loaded up our snowmobiles and we headed out to the hills. And e the trails were all closed and stuff, but it's, there's snow, right? So we go out to the Black Hills and um, we are going to spend a day uh, getting after some snow. And so we, we headed out across the plains and we, we were climbing up and dropping into some valleys and climbing over another ridge and dropping into another. And we kind of found ourselves in, a, in an area that we were unfamiliar with. 
Uh, we'd been all over the Black Hills, but we had not been in this part because the snow was better there, and so we were chasing the best snow, right? And so not paying attention to where we were, we, got up, we climbed up the side of a mountain, and we were at the top, and we were trying to figure out, like, I think we know where we're at, but we're not sure. We're getting a little bit nervous, but not too much because all the rescue people are gone. Like, the trails are closed down. You're, you know, people tell us when we're going out there with our sledge, you're really not supposed to be out here. And so we're, we're making a decision at the top of this mountain. Should we drop down into that valley, or should we follow a different ridge? We're not sure, but I think we know where that goes. I, I think we'll be okay. This looks fine. So we decide, you know, under a little bit of angst, uh, we're going to go ahead and drop off this, this mountain. So we dropped off the side, and we started heading down the mountain. Well, soon the mountain got really steep. And it kept getting steeper and steeper. And it kept getting to, like, in skiing terms, like diamond, double diamond uh, steep. Well, when you're on a snowmobile going down a mountain, uh, you're there for the ride when it gets that steep. You can't stop. And so you're literally hanging on, weaving through trees, and just kind of hoping to get to the bottom. Well, it just kept getting steeper and steeper. And when you get in real trouble, when you're going down a mountain like that, you start hitting little trees to slow yourself down. So... The, the rule is if it's the, if it's, if it's the size of your wrist, it's okay to hit. And so, so we're literally trying to slow ourselves down by hitting these little trees. And at a moment, I, I hit a little tree, but a big tree was beside it, and the branches drug me off of my snowmobile. And so my snowmobile came to rest, thankfully, on a big tree uh, ahead of me. Otherwise, I would pick it up in pieces at the bottom of the mountain. And so here we here he set. My, my buddy's coming down yet. He finds a way to also hit a tree, and there we are, literally, I'm not kidding, we're on the side of a mountain, it is very steep, and getting steeper, and we can't see the bottom. You know when you're skiing, and you're at the top, and you, you know it's steep, and you, don't, you can't actually see where the bottom is? We can't see the bottom at this point, point. we're like, it's getting steeper. So we're sitting there, we decide, hey, you know what, I think we'll shimmy down, and just see what's ahead. Well, about 30 feet in front of us was a cliff that spanned as far as you could see both ways. Um, so by God's grace, right, uh, literally, we sat there for probably an hour on the side of the mountain just thanking God for his grace and then trying to figure out how we're going to get down. I'm not going to tell that part of the story. you have to ask me afterwards, but it would take too long. But I think we could all agree that if at the top of the mountain we would have had a knowledge of what was down there, that would have changed everything, wouldn't it? If we would have known what was around the corner, if we did, if, uh, what was around the corner, what we could not see, if we could simply have seen that and known that, we would have confidently made a different decision, wouldn't we? We would have not had any angst at the top of the mountain. We wouldn't have to sit there and debate and wrestle and struggle. We would have absolutely, with confidence, that we're not going that way, right? Um, in the book of Revelation. John is writing to a people that live in the same reality that we lived in that day and we all live in every single day. We live in the reality of uncertainty as human beings, don't we? We live in a reality of chaos. We have to make decisions every single day with, without the facts. We do not know how things are going to turn out. We spend a lot of our time trying to reduce the risks, minimize risks, trying to, trying to make sure that the outcome is going to be okay. But there are a myriad of realities and things that can happen any given second, even right here this morning, that could completely change every one of our lives. We've just heard about that in Indonesia, right? In one moment, there are things that we have no idea 
about. People got up that morning, they made decisions that morning, they had no idea what was around the corner. That's the reality of us, our lives as human beings. We live with uncertainty. And John is writing to a people in the book of Revelation who are then and now living in this reality of uncertainty and chaos. And, the, and John, the point that John is giving is, is John is given this vision of God. He's given a vision of Jesus walking so far, as we saw last week but from Pastor Nick, walking amongst his churches. He knows his church. He commends his church for her faithfulness. He indicts his church for her unfaithfulness. And in that unfaithfulness, he calls his church to repentance lest they face the consequences, lest the lampstand, as it says in the first couple chapters, be removed from them. John is writing to these churches in the midst of incredible uncertainty, in the midst of incredible chaos. And these churches, as Pastor Nick was going to get to last week and didn't, these churches are a picture of all churches throughout all of time. These churches represent us. They represent the churches then. They represent, represent the churches now. They're, in fact, their struggles are our struggles. Jesus' words of commendation to them is also his words of commendation to us for our faithfulness and for their faithfulness. His words of indictment, his rebuke of them for their unfaithfulness, we should hear and take heed that they're the rebuke for us, for our unfaithfulness. His call of repentance in the midst of unfaithfulness is the, to them is a call to us as well to repent and turn lest the lampstand be removed. The churches in Revelation 2 and 3, as well as all the churches throughout history, including us here today, they were tempted to complacency. They were tempted to be complacent, to take for granted things, to be apathetic in their faith. They were tempted to tolerate false teachings. They, they, they were at times all head and no heart. They were at times all heart and no head, right? They didn't, they didn't have a solid foundation, but they, they loved everything, right? And everybody, but they had no solid doctrine, or they had really clear doctrine and thinking, but they, were, they had no heart. They didn't care about people. They were cold, right? And Jesus confronts them for this. The church in the first century that John is writing to, they were facing persecution, physical persecution. They lived in a time in which the people had to declare their allegiance to Caesar as Lord. And yet they had determined, having seen the glory of Christ, they had determined and declared their allegiance to Jesus as the Lord over all, including Caesar. And they paid for it, some with their lives, with their finances. They couldn't get jobs. They were ostracized from their families and their communities, unable to work, unable to buy and sell goods, unable to participate in the regular community activities because they were marked as believers in Jesus Christ. Christ, it costs them, and it costs today as well. All of these characteristics of these churches in chapters 2 and 3, good and bad, are characteristics of the church today. It must be noted that all over the world, there are churches facing some or all of these challenges that we saw last week in varying degrees and even in increasing degrees, that tribulation was real then and it's real today. Let me, just, let me just point out, I think it's, I think it's worth us noting this because we don't, we don't often think of this where we sit in relative comfort and ease. But 
In the 21st century alone, there were 1,093,000 Christians martyred for their faith. That's more than the previous, than all of previous church history. That between the, the years of 2000 and 2010, there was on average each year 100 to 150,000 Christians are murdered. These are the ones we know about, are killed simply because they declare that Jesus is Lord. The current stats, the most recent stats that we have are that every single month, 322 Christians are killed around the world for their faith. That 214 buildings and properties owned by churches are completely destroyed every single month around the world simply because they believe in Jesus. 772 forms of violence or acts of violence are recorded towards Christians every single month. Rape, arrest, kidnapping, and beatings because they believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. So in light of what must have appeared, I'm sure, to those churches in the first century and certainly to the church today, in light of what most certainly appeared to be complete uncertainty and total chaos, both then and now, God gives John a vision. I say all that stuff, right? It feels a little sobering, doesn't it? But I say all that to go, in light of that, John gives his, God gives to John and therefore to his church a vision of a greater reality that's going on, of a, of a bigger picture. He, he's going to open up the heavens and he's going to give John a heavenly picture, a picture that most certainly was intended to bring comfort and encouragement to his church, intended to give them confidence to press on. They were able to see something that normally we would not get to see. And the beauty is, is that this vision that God gave to John, he he was to write it down so that we too could have the same benefit. We too today, I I thought about this. I, I I don't think I even realized this until this morning really. As I was studying this, you know, you're studying all the words and all this kind of stuff and you're going, heaven, as we look at this text, heaven is being opened up so that you could see today bigger picture than the chaos in this world so that you could be encouraged so that you could be comforted so that you could know where true joy and peace comes from today no matter what's going on in your life no matter what kind of chaos and struggle and strife is happening in your life today God is going to peel back heaven and he's going to give you a glimpse he's going to say fear not I am on the throne fear not church I've got your back There is a greater reality to life than what we can see. And it's intended to give them confidence to press on because God's kingdom will triumph over Satan's kingdom. That all the sin and wickedness and degradation and broken relationships that sin creates in this world, God's kingdom is pressing in on Satan's kingdom and he will in the end win once and for all on your behalf, on my behalf for his glory and for our good. Amen? That's what this vision is about. I don't know if I can figure out how to, how to say it more. Like, this is what we get to see today. These words that we read, this is God opening heaven up so we could see in. And next week is going to be the same thing. He's going to expand upon it. Look, he's going to take the camera. He's going to expand it out. He's going to see even more 
of what God is doing, what's happening in heaven before the throne, even as we're here this morning singing and preaching and praying together. And so the first thing we see is the invitation. John is going to receive an invitation in chapter 1 here, or chapter 4, verse 1. And the invitation, he says, after this, that is, simply means after the vision that had previously gone before in chapters 1, 2, and 3. He says, after this, I looked, and behold, there was a door standing open in heaven. There it is, right? A door in the Bible, as well as today, represents access, right? If you wanted to get into this room, I didn't see anybody bust through the walls. You may be able to figure out how to do that, I'm sure. But the best way is through the door, right? The door opens up access, right, to the room. And so, so here we see a door in heaven. We see this is true in the New and Old Testament, right? Uh, Jesus is even considered the door at one point. And so, so we see this door that is opened in heaven, and there's a voice. He says it's the voice that he heard before. In other words, in chapter 1, when, when it talks about Jesus calling John to write this vision down, the voice that he heard was one that was like a trumpet. Trumpets are actually significant little instruments in the Old Testament. I don't know if you realize that in the Bible. Uh, trumpets were, were vital instruments. If you just imagine the children of God in the wilderness, a couple million people out there, right? And how in the world without email and text and Instagram and you know, Facebook, how did, they, how did they communicate, right? I mean, we can't even imagine. Uh, I'm thinking back to the days of phones that were attached to the wall. That was hard enough. Just imagine having none of that, right? right? So, so they, the, the, the trumpet was one of the ways that they communicated. It signaled things. It caused people, when they heard the trumpet, it awoke. They were to wake up and to pay attention. They were to do something. Uh, when there was a war that was impending, the, the trumpet was sounded in a certain way to signal, there's war coming. Get ready for battle. Whenever they were to pack up their tents in the wilderness... There was a trumpet that was sound that they were supposed to pack up. The trumpet would sound again when they were supposed to all march. I mean, how would you know to take off, right? Okay, now we leave. Dun, 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 dun. You know, like, I don't know. That's the way it worked. And so the trumpet, when the trumpet sounded, it was a call to pay attention to something, to, to, to look, to see there's something going to happen, there's something going on. And so here, the voice of God in this sense is considered a trumpet. It's calling John to pay attention I'm going to show you something. I'm going to do something spectacular that you're going to see. And so he gives him an invitation. He says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. John is going to get to have a look into all of church history. And we, too, get to have a little glimpse today into it as well. Notice that John is not physically taken up into heaven. Right? He wasn't sitting in his office in Patmos, on the island of Patmos, and all of a sudden he leaves his desk and is taken up. But we're going to see in verse 4, the, the next verse, that he is in the spirit, just like he was in chapter 1. This is a spiritual reality. God is going to show him something in the spirit that he would not otherwise see, and he's supposed to write it down for our benefit. He's supposed to write down the things that, have been, that, have, that you have seen, chapter 1, verse 19, the things that are and the things that will take place after this. Um, there are typically two views. I'm going to be really simplistic today. Uh, two views. We could break it down to all kinds of other ones. But there are typically two views of this in, in, amongst Christians and amongst scholars. Um, one view, that is when I say this, the word after this. What is it referring to? 
there's two views typically of this. One view is, is taken this to mean that everything from chapter 4 on through the end of the book uh, takes place after the church has been removed from the earth. This view says that chapter 3 describes the church age and chapter 4 and 5 describe the secret rapture of the church to heaven and the rest of the book describes what will take place during the great tribulation. This view would say that the evidence would be that there's no more mention of the church in the book of Revelation. However, there's another view. Uh, and I would hold to this second view uh, this morning just so you know where I'm coming from. This view would say that the church is spoken of several times throughout the book of Revelation in the following chapters. And John never does tell us in these verses that the church is caught up into heaven. He merely informs us that he himself, John, was translated, that is, he was taken by the Spirit to see what is in heaven. And above all, I, this is a quote actually from a man, by the, a, a pastor who's passed away by the name of Hoxima. He says, if it were the case that we were, that is, taken away if the church is taken away from this earth, from this time forth, we have, we have no part and, and has no part in the tribulations which will happen, what would be the use and the purpose of the rest of this book? Which is plainly written for the comfort of the church in the midst of tribulation and trials and sufferings in this present time. This view, according to Huxima, maintains that, that all that is recorded in the rest of this book concerns the whole church in the world and is written for the joy and the comfort and the hope of the church then and now. Hereafter, therefore, means, that is, after this means, uh, means after the present time from John's point of view, that John is receiving a vision of the things which must come to pass in the future and not merely things which will happen at the very end of the future, but the entire future of the church. From the time John receives this vision until Christ returns, albeit we see in Revelation and we'll see in a very intensifying manner. So uh, there's a very simplified version of a debate that's happened throughout thousands of years of church history. How's that? That's where I'm coming from. The most important thing is the vision. So let's turn to verse 2 and look at this vision. So John gets to have a look, and we get to see it today, of this vision of what's going on in heaven. This is These images that we're going to see, these symbols that he's going to use, these are not new things. These are things that have been used to describe the presence of God throughout the Old Testament. We're going to see, if you were to read Ezekiel chapter 1, you'll see these words. If you were to read Isaiah 6, you'll see what's taking place here. If you read uh, in, in Exodus chapter 19, in the following chapters, you will see this. You read Daniel 7, you'll see these very things. That when God reveals himself, he reveals himself in these splendor and glorious ways. And so here we get to see what's going on. It says in verse 2 that, that John, at once he says, I was in the Spirit. So there it is. He's in the Spirit, not physically. He's in the Spirit, and behold... He says, a throne. What does he see? A throne stood in heaven with one who is seated on that throne. So the first thing he sees is a throne. And thrones are very significant pieces of furniture, uh, both now and then. Uh, and he sees someone who's sitting on that throne. And then he goes on to describe, he says in verse 3, that he who sat there had the appearance. Again, there we go. The, it's the appearance. He's God is not these things, it, but his presence, his glory has the appearance of these things. What is it the appearance of? Jasper, uh, which is an opaque kind of green stone. 
uh, and he says, and cornelian, which is a fiery red stone. These, ironically, are in the, in the Old Testament, the breastplate that the, the priests wore when they would walk into the temple. Uh, this was the first and the last stone in the breastplate. They had, they had 12 stones in their breastplate representing the 12 tribes of Israel that the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and pray before God with the people of God near to his heart, Right? Uh, so this beautiful picture there, and here we have these stones here that are that are being des- that are describing these beautiful stones, the first and the last. I don't think that's a mistake, right? The first stone and the last stone in the breastplate. Jesus being, as we saw last week, the first and the last. Uh, and so I don't know that that's a mistake, but it could be just my my uh, uh, thoughts. But uh, but here we have these stones, and these stones around the throne is this, this rainbow that says appears like an emerald, which would be like a diamond, right? Uh, and so here we have this rainbow, and it's, it's said, if, if you do a little background, it's that when the sun or the light shines on these two, these two stones, the jasper and the carnelian, it creates this rainbow-like thing, right? So, I don't know, this, this is kind of cool, here's, here's what it is. So, so, but, it, but what it's meant to point us to is the glory of God, right? The splendor and the majesty of our God that as, as John gets to see the throne of God and the one seated on it, he sees this beauty and splendor and glory. And no doubt the rainbow, I, I'd have to think, it's reminding us of God's divine mercy even in the face of judgment. Amen? The, the fact that Noah in the days of the flood, right? Even though God judged the people for their complete rejection of him, the rainbow was, a, was his promise to them to never do it in that way again. It was a picture of his divine mercy even in the midst of judgment. And no, no doubt in this book, uh, there's a picture of that. But then we see, so we've seen what's on the throne. He says in verse 4, he talks about what's around the throne. There were 24 thrones. So we have a throne, 24 thrones. On it were 24 elders. Um, there's a lot of conversations about what these 24 elders, who they were, what they were. Were they angels? Were they people? I think probably uh, the best way to understand it is it it's, it's represents the entirety of God's people. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles possibly. Uh, but it represents the entirety of God's people standing before the throne of God. And it says that they were clothed in white garments, which is a picture of their purity, right? Which next week we will see is the result of the blood of Jesus that was shed for them, the lamb that was slain, right? And so we have these, these elders, they're clothed in white, which re, re, uh, re, refers to their purity, and with golden crowns on their heads. You say, what is that about? I don't know if you know, like in the New Testament, when the Bible talks about the rewards of God's children for their faithfulness in the midst of trials, it refers to those rewards as crowns. Again, these are symbols that represent real things. I don't know what the real thing, I don't know what the actual reward is, other than we know it's Jesus. Ultimately, it's going to be Jesus. We'll see that next week. But they have these crowns. Think of James chapter 1, verse 12. This is blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, for when he has stood the test of time, he will receive the crown of life, which is laid up for those who put their faith in Christ, right? And so, so this is a picture like many times in the New Testament. So here are, these, here are these, these 24 elders, probably representing the people of God, the church of God from all time, Old and New Testament. They're, they're white, have white garments with their, 
representing their purity. They have crowns of gold upon their heads. And then it says, so that's what's around the throne. Then it says from the throne, emanating from it. Like, I'm just building this whole thing, right? There is a huge point to this, right? So from the throne is flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Now, this is a, this is a clear picture to Exodus chapter 19. When God came down and met with the people, it says these exact words. There were rumblings and lightnings, rumblings and peals of thunder. It was so awe-inspiring. I, I grew up in the Midwest. We had thunderstorms in the Midwest. I miss those here, actually. I mean, where literally you're sleeping soundly in your bed at night, and thunder will boom so hard, it will shake the glass in your windows, and it will cause you to leap out of your bed. And then you will spend the rest of the night looking at your TV and watching out the window because it's spectacular. Like it's amazing. We would literally sometimes just lay in the living room with our big picture window and just, just look at it and not get any sleep because it was just amazing, right? This is the picture that we have here. It's just unbelievable presence of God that coming from this throne where God is seated is this spectacular uh, brilliance of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And it says before the throne, so around the throne, from the throne, on the throne, now before the throne there were seven burning torches of fire, which are seven spirits of God. Most, some would say that the seven torches are the churches, but it's not, I, I think pretty clearly, because the, in the first chapter, when it talks about the lampstands, that's very different than the seven burning torches, not even the same word at all. So this is probably the word, the number seven is a representation of completeness and fullness. And so probably it's a way of John simply God showing him that the fullness of God's spirit was there. The full presence, the complete presence of God through his spirit was present before the throne of God. And then it says, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass as crystal. This is a beautiful picture. Um, the sea in the Bible represents judgment usually. The sea was often a very negative thing on earth. Um, think about Jesus, right? He's with the 12 disciples. They're in the boat, and a storm comes up. Jesus is sleeping, and the disciples are scared out of their minds, right? Because the boat is rocking. There's waves that are overwhelming the boat, and they're going to die, they know it. They're going to die out here in the sea. Jesus wakes up from his sleep. And what does he do? He speaks to the waves, and it stops. And everything is dead calm. Jesus is seen as having authority even over the waves of the sea. And here, before the throne of God, we see a sea, and it is dead calm like crystal. You know what that looks like, right? Around here, we don't have a lot of wind not, not like where I'm from in the Midwest. Uh, our lake is often glass. It's often just this beautiful glass, which is an amazing picture to be able to look in. It's as if God wants John and us to see that things seem tumultuous and crazy down here. But in God's presence, it is absolutely calm. Take heart, in an essence, he's saying. Take heart in my presence calm before the throne. And then he says, around the throne on each side of these four living creatures, which most likely is a representation of all of God's creation, 
the fullness of creation. It says this, these four creatures are full of eyes in front and behind. That's a strange thing, right? If you try to draw this out, kids, today, I dare you, try to draw this wonderful picture of these creatures with wings and eyes, and one is like an, uh, it, it goes through all four, one's like a lion, one's like an ox, one's like a man, one's like an eagle in flight, and they have wings, and they're on the move, and they have eyes all around them. What is, what is, this seems like a strange picture, right? But, uh, but this is a picture of, in, in fact, in the tabernacle, we have a very similar picture of the cherubim and the seraphim that overlooked the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God was seated, where his presence was. This is where God was present with his people. And he came down in the temple. And so we have very, uh, a picture of these very same things. And then in Ezekiel chapter 1, we see the very same picture of God leaving the temple because of their unfaithfulness. And it's these same creatures with these same faces leaving the temple. They have eyes all around, able to go in any direction, able to see everything and, and the eyes probably even represent uh, uh, like the character of God because the eyes in the Bible aren't simply just for seeing, but they're also for seeing in. It's like a window, the Bible says, into the character, the heart of a person. And so here we have this creature that is really a representation of their creator, and it says that they're, they, <laughs> they're full of eyes all around and within, and it says day and night. Here's what they're doing. Here's the activity going on. Day and night. And night, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. They, they are lifting up and praising God, these four creatures before God. They are praising him because he is holy. He's absolutely pure, completely unlike any of us. He is almighty, that is, he is all-powerful and sovereign over all things, and he was and he is and he is to come, meaning he's eternal. He's always existed. He always will exist. There'll never be a time in which he does not exist. This is our God that they are seeing and they are worshiping him for who he is as a holy God who is almighty and who is eternal. And then, that's not all. Again, if you read Ezekiel 1 this afternoon, you'll see this vision unfold. And when those creatures are praising God for his holiness and his power and for his eternality, when they are praising God, when they do that, it signals to these 24 elders they also then, it says, uh, if you read the next verses there, it says, it says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him. So they are worshiping God, giving glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne and who lives forever and ever. Notice he keeps emphasizing this. Verse 10, the 24 elders also fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. So when these creatures worship it signals them to fall down on their faces and they worship him and it says they do something amazing. They even take the crowns and they throw them before the throne. Now, that's a pretty powerful picture because these crowns most likely represents the, the, the rewards of God for their faithfulness in enduring the hardships on earth. And yet even in the presence of God, even those rewards are 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 second, are subject to him. They take them off and they lay them at his feet and they worship him. They cry out, it says, before the throne and they say, worthy are you, 
our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will all things exist. This is what's going on in heaven. I believe even as we sit here this morning, our worship and our songs and our singing as we sang these songs, we are joining with a reality that's going on in heaven that's even greater than we can imagine or even understand today. So, what is the point of all of this? Deep breath. There's a lot of details there, isn't it? And you might think, that's really weird. (laughs) What is the point? What would God want John and these churches and you to know today? What is the point of this? I think the first point that he's trying to make and really the ultimate point is he wants them to know these persecuted, suffering, tempted, struggling, dealing with chaos and uncertainty Christians just like us, he wants to show us the power of God and the work of God throughout all of his creation. That God is a mighty God, a powerful God, and he is working He is working things out in your life and through your life on your behalf for his glory. All of history is in his hands. We see in heaven a God who is on the throne. You remember the importance of thrones? Even in ancient days, when the king is seen as sitting on his throne, that was a a sign that things were good. That was a sign that even though there might be chaos out there, Everything was going to be okay because the king was sitting on his throne. The kingdom is doing well. It's going to survive. Nothing is lost. And here we see a picture that John is given and we're given that our God, even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of your chaos, which is probably a reality here this morning, there's probably ample amounts of chaos going on in your life, even right now. Things that are happening in your marriage, in your family, in your finances, in your job, maybe just your attitude stinks today. I don't know what it might be, right? We see a picture of a God who is absolutely on his throne and he is working in all of his creation. We see a picture of God who is glorious beyond our comprehension, our ability to see. Our God is glorious. We see a God who is holy. He is absolutely perfect. He does no wrong, as Deuteronomy says. Upright and just is he. We see a God who is almighty. He is powerful. He's a God who is eternal. He's always existed and always will exist. We see a God who is the creator of all things. This is why, what they're worshiping him for. He's the creator of all things, including your life. He's made you. He knows what your life is for. He knows the purpose of your life. He knows the purpose of every struggle, every tear you cry, every moment of your life. He knows it. He's the creator of your life and everything, and yet it says he's the sustainer, that everything exists by him. He's the sustainer of all things. He holds things together. You breathe air this morning. You have oxygen and blood flowing through your veins because God is sustaining and upholding the universe. We are flying around the solar system this morning because of the power of God's might, because of his sustaining power. He's He's the glorious and holy and mighty, eternal creator and sustainer of all things, and he is on the throne. He's never once. We see a beautiful 
picture here of a glorious God. Do you know this God? Do you know him? I, on a secondary note, but I think it's way up there. We also have here, in terms of the point, is that John is able to help us see by writing this down. He's able to show us why we worship. Why do we sing songs? Why do we gather together and do this? Is this just an exercise? Did we have nothing else going on this morning? <laughs> right? Why did we gather here? Why did we sing songs that lift up the holiness and the glory of God? Why did we do that? Because he's worthy. He's the only one worthy. You might even be here this morning, you might say, you know what, Chris, uh, why is your God the only true God? Why is he the only one worthy to be worshipped? Why not the Buddhists? Why not, the, why not Islam? Why not all these other gods? There's tons of gods, right? Thousands. In fact, these people in first century had thousands upon thousands upon thousands of gods. Still do. Why not those? What makes your God so special? And I'll simply say this. If you can show me a God or anything that is as glorious and powerful as the God of the Bible, I will worship it. Amen? If there was a God who is more glorious, more holy, more righteous, more eternal, I don't know how you can get that, more eternal, if you could find someone who created everything, sustains everything, and is at work in everything in your life, I will worship your God. But there isn't, is there? If there is, you come and talk to me immediately, right? But there's not. He is the only one worthy. He has made everything. By his will, everything exists. This is the God we have. It shows us why we worship, and it shows us the nature of our worship. The worship we see here in Revelation 4 ought to be the way in which we worship. And in fact, as the Lord's Prayer says, let it be on earth, what? As it is in heaven. I think that's really the prayer, right? God, let it be here. This is our hope, right? This is John's hope. This is the hope of the persecuted church. God, let it be today in this place. When we sing the closing song and we take communion, let it be here the same way it is in heaven. Let us have the same fervency and the same passion. May, may, the, may the people in our, our families and our neighborhoods and our jobs, may, may it witness to them, by, may it be a testimony to them by the way we respond to this great and amazing God. I think if we could see this vision and keep this in mind, we would never be sleepy and bored in church ever again. Right? If we could truly worship with this in mind, that this is what it's about. It's about a, a worthy God who's the only one who's worthy, who has made you and sustained you, who's eternal, who's he's everything. So Lord, let it be on earth as it is in heaven. Let us see this vision today. I, I really mean, like, I think, I know in our church, there's a lot of heartache at times. There's a lot of struggle in your lives. So I, I just encourage you today to receive John's, this vision from God and to go, even though, even in the midst of that, this is my God. He's at work. 
He's never stopped working and he will not stop working. In fact, he's done the ultimate work on your behalf, which we will see in its fullness in the second part of this vision next week. He has sent his son, Jesus. He's ultimately fulfilled his, his promise to you and to me by providing for us what we need most, which is a relationship with him. You know what makes all the difference in this little vision? It's a relationship. You can know these facts that I've just said to you in your head. I can know these facts in my head. I could preach this sermon. But without an actual relationship, this isn't real. If this God that we're talking about is just some, some idea in our heads, then this is just an exercise in futility, isn't it? But if you know this God, if you know him personally, if you know that this God has sent his son down to this earth, He's provided for you the Lamb of God that was slain for the sins, for your sins, for my sins, so that you and I could be one with him. Imagine that. We are one with him. He's brought us into this family, made us sons, given us an inheritance, every one of us, male, female, slave or free, black, white, doesn't matter. This is what God has done. And so we're going to close off, I think, appropriately by celebrating today what God has done for us in Christ. And next week, we're going to see this vision pan out, and we're going to see a beautiful picture of Jesus, the lion, and the lamb. It's, it's an incredible picture. And so that's what we're going to study next week. But let us today just come to the table as we do this, and we do this together, right? We, we together take the bread which is a representation of Jesus' body given for you and for me, beaten and bruised, the wrath of God for your sin and my sin placed upon him, absorbed in his body. And the, the cup, we take the cup because Jesus on that cross shed his own blood and he shed it for you and for me, right? He, you say, why the blood? The Bible simply says that without the blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, without the shedding of blood, right? Because life is in the blood, if your life ceases to flow through your veins this morning, you're dead, right? That's it. And yet we have this picture in Scripture that the Lamb of God, Jesus, gave up his own life. He shed his blood on the cross in your place and my place so that your sins would be forgiving and you would have life. And so that's what we celebrate today when we come to this table. Let me ask you, do you believe that? If you believe that today, if that is your profession of faith, you believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that he died for you. If you believe that, then I encourage you today to take communion with us.